Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. This week on Mad World, we have the most remarkable woman, and she is a woman, not a man, despite her name being Steve, or her full name being Dame Stephanie Shirley. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Why do people call you Steve? Well, I'd set up a woman's company with everybody working from home. Now, this is now considered very fashionable, but in those days, it was laughable. People laughed at me. And... I was sort of launching out letters left, right and centre, trying to drum up some business and with no reply whatsoever. And my dear husband suggested that I use the family nickname of Steve Shirley. So instead of that double feminine of Stephanie Shirley, Shirley's my marital name, I, I was Steve Shirley. And the letters began to get some reply. And I've been Steve ever since. Now, Steve, you are a businesswoman. I was a computer pioneer, then because I'm in the National Museum of Computing, so you see before you a, a museum piece. Um, but yes, <laughs> we're very lucky. We're <laughs> honoured to have you. <laughs> but then I set up a, a very interesting company for women to write software, and now I'm a philanthropist. That's now, what I do. Now Steve is a philanthropist, and she founded the charity Autistica, which helps research and helps people with autism. Steve, I'm going to call you Steve now. That's Although, the, I, that's can I call I like. you Dame Steve? Because that just sounds so cool. Well, if you cool. do the Dame, you have to do a curtsy. And, and okay, hang on. I'm just going to stand up. I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm not very good at curtsies. <laughs> I did have to do a curtsy once to a royal and I fell over because I was seven months <laughs> pregnant and wearing heels. It was very embarrassing. The first question we ask every guest on this podcast is, how are you today? So we know we ask this question a million times a day and people go, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all cool. How are you honestly today, Steve? Well, for the past 20 years, I can honestly say I have been happy, serene, enjoying day to day and week to week. But it wasn't always like that. So tell us more why why it wasn't always like that. Well, I had a traumatic childhood and that impacted me um, really in my teen years. And by the time I was in my 20s, I was having talking therapies at the Tavistock Clinic, which is a very leading clinic. This was quite groundbreaking at the time. Well, Tavistock... I was amazed because I didn't pay a bean. I was a refugee and didn't have any money. So let's, um, go, let's go back to the to this story. So you were a child refugee. You came over here when you were five? I was five years old on the kinder transport. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of 10,000 unaccompanied child refugees um, who came out of Germany and Austria during those years. 
And although I was very, very lucky, I was fostered by a wonderful couple in the Midlands of England with a nice reassuring name of Guy and Ruby Smith, and I do love them dearly, or they're dead now, of course. But I was very lucky, and um, nevertheless, I was in quite a mess mentally. Do you have many memories of Germany before you left? The childish memories, where we lived, uh, the storks on the roofs of Vienna, uh, the doll that I lost was more important than the home that I lost. The deprivation was quite different, I think. And what happens when you survive? And everybody was telling me as a sort of five, six, seven-year-old child, oh, aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky? And indeed, I am very lucky to have survived those terrible times. But what happens with survivors is that you get stuck with some sort of survivor guilt, which Mm -hmm. seems quite counterintuitive, that guilty that you're alive when, when so many others died, including a million children. That led to really some mental problems and um, a lover of mine suggested that I went to the Tavistock Clinic and they treated me for six years. So this was when you were in your 20s? In my 20s. So that was back in the 19... (laughs) I do the arithmetic, the 50s. 1950s. So no one was talking about mental health. Well, one kept very quiet about it. Very few people knew... My family didn't know. I really didn't feel I was fit to marry until I had got through that process. And I was, again, very lucky, and I did finish up. And since then, I've managed very well. You talk about you were were fostered. You were reunited with your biological parents, and you've said that you never quite kind of clicked with them. I think that happens when children are separated from their family very early on, and it was a long separation. Sadly, I I did never bond with them again. I looked after my mother when she was elderly, um, but it was never really... It was a dutiful relationship rather than a a loving relationship. That's not good. No. So to talk, because I think often nowadays we hear people talking about how there's an epidemic of mental health issues and anxiety. Oh, it's always been there, This is what I think. This is exactly what I think. I'm thinking, are you telling me the people that lived through the Second World War weren't in terrible turmoil? And you Some of them can't speak about it. Yeah. This is the thing. It's, as you said, it's always been there. Mm. What was it like having that inner turmoil and not being able to talk about it to people and keeping what was going on in your head I mean you were obviously as you said you were lucky although it's not a definition of luck that many of us would recognize you know being separated from your parents and you know an unaccompanied minor having to travel across Europe but what what was it like how did you get to the position where you could speak find the Tavistock center and speak to them well the Tavistock was world-renowned and oddly enough I spoke and spoke and spoke and spoke to them And the analyst really said very little. I learnt afterwards he belonged to the Kleinian school, but it doesn't mean anything to me. And um, you gradually learn to to open up. As a manager, I also learnt to show my vulnerability. When I started in business, I was, you know, this is the way to do it. I'm very clever and I know how to do this better than you do. 
But I soon learned that really the results were much better when I sort of said, Brani, I'm having trouble with this. Could you help me with it? Mm -hmm. And then, oh, I'll help you in the afternoon if you want. Um, It became a much more open relationship. And my company had a very, very good culture, which I think I've taken over into the philanthropic field. Mm. So you were one of the first kind of... You are a game changer in yes, terms of... Yes, people call me disruptive or <laughs> dynamo. Anyway, it's nice still to be doing things. Dame Disruptive Dynamo Steve, something like that. <laughs> you said that you had mental health problems. How did they manifest themselves? Acute anxiety. Um, I started off taking these purple hearts, which were prescribed for me, but they, of course, are addictive. Uh, I was pretty unhappy. I was depressed to the level of weeping once I was suicidal. You know, it's funny how these things go, Brownie. So you were in your 20s, and then did that save you, the therapy? I think it made me the person that I am. I still am um, motivated by the same things that drove me in my teens. I like change. Um, I've learned to deal with dramatic change. And I've come to to actually like it. And that was useful to me in my technical career. I also had this driving force of the need to make my life worth saving. And that's, again, not a terribly healthy emotion. But I still have it. Each day I want to do something worthwhile. I don't want to just fritter it away. And finally, I've become a patriot. I mean, I love this country with a passion that only someone who has lost their human rights can Mm -hmm. feel. So those drivers are still very much there. We were talking earlier about, I was saying I was writing a piece about the refugee crisis in Calais and Dunkirk. And you were saying back in the 40s, things were much more organised. Well, the religious, um, it was the Christian and Jewish activists who set up the kinder transport and saved 10,000 children, plus a lot of adults came out as well during that time because it was organised. We had foster parents here who guaranteed that we would not be a call on the state, basically. I think they put up £50, which would be about £3,000 today. It was a funny time. I think people are more selfish these days. We've got accustomed to quite a high standard of living. We've forgotten what it's like to be poor, and many people were poor. And so you have an affinity with other people who are going through problems. I mean, nowadays I find people are pretty selfish. And what I enjoy about philanthropy and and getting involved with things like Autistica is that you are dealing with good people who are trying to make a difference in the world. And the one thing that helps with depression is compassion. Mm. And that certainly proved true with me. The more I've got involved with philanthropy, the happier I am in myself. And basically, the more money I give away, the better my life is. So it's sort of gone back full circle, perhaps. Kindness is so important, isn't it? It's very Mm. underrated as a quality. And I think it's very easy currently to kind of see the worst in humanity, what with everything going on. Does it sadden you that we live in this culture where we're not allowing vulnerable children in? We We don't seem to have the kindness we had 60 years ago. I think for the first time I was really ashamed of this country having so little impact on what was going on there. Not good. Let's talk about why you founded Autistica, because you, your son, your only child, Giles? Giles. He had severe autism. 
Yes, and by severe, I mean severe, but I was, again, lucky because he started off as a sort of gorgeous baby, and, and so we bonded very much in the early days. Um, but he did turn into a wild, unmanageable toddler. He did lose speech. I was warned that he would lose his other senses, but that didn't happen. He was epileptic. He never spoke again. It was a very woeful life, and it was quite hard for the family to deal with such a, a vulnerable and demanding child. I mean, my husband and I played box and cocks. There was always one of us with him. And our marriage really nearly broke up because, I mean, both of us love Giles more than we did each other, and that's not a good formula for marriage. But anyway, we are still together after 55 years, and uh, I am now very content in my myself and happy in my own shoes. How old was he when he stopped talking? About two and a half. Okay. And over a period, I, I'm not sure whether it was days or a week or something, but very suddenly, the, he'd just be very quiet one day and, and next day, you know, you're really trying to encourage him to sort of come out. And then, then the speech gradually stopped. So this was in the 60s? 60s. And mm. what, how much was understood about autism at the time? Very little. It was considered to be a rare disorder. I mean, now it attacks uh, one in 68 children and all those children of course grow into adults mm. so we have a lot of people um, with autistic tendencies in the workforce in society and we have to learn not that they should fit in with our way of uh, doing things but that we have to adjust society to use the skills that they do have um, and some of them are gifted and some of them many like my Giles really are about as vulnerable as you can get. Mm -hmm. So can you explain, because we, I mean, we hear about autism all the time in the news, but just for anyone who's listening and sort of doesn't really know what, what it means. It's a brain disorder, and we've known that for some time, but it used to be thought of as a psychological disorder. Uh, but it is known now to be a brain disorder, and we know with about 5% of autistic people what actually causes it. In general, though, it's still, you know, it's been around since the 30s, it's still a big, big question mark. It basically um, is involved with uh, communication. Uh, it's not just lack of speech, but the lack of communicating, lack of body language, lack, lack of eye contact. And th that really leads to a sort of rigidity for the autistic person that they can't cope with change at all, um, that they really are panicked and really threatened by any form of, of change. So they need a very sort of structured life. Very difficult, very difficult indeed. So Giles, I've read interviews where you, you spoke about how difficult it was and that at some point you, you even kind of considered a family suicide. Yes, we did, yes. We couldn't really see any future for him or for the family. And we did discuss it, my husband and I. I think had he agreed, I would have gone ahead with it. But he felt that it wasn't right for Giles that he couldn't make an informed decision. 
And so we moved away from that idea. And I'm very glad that we did, because later on, Giles did begin to live a sort of quiet, dignified life in the community. He spent 11 years in hospital, so it wasn't all honey. Obviously, at the time now, thanks to you, uh, we all know l- about it, don't we? Largely, that's what we do. We know about, it, but you know, at the time, so you you felt you had to put him into into a. It wasn't something that I felt, Brian. I broke down. I could completely cease to function. I finished up in hospital. Really? Since I was the prime carer, Giles also went into hospital, and my doctor sort of said he wasn't going to send me home until I'd made better arrangements for Giles. So you had to live in the hospital with him. No, he went to his, what do they call it, subnormality hospital, basically awesome. an asylum. Um, he was still at school then, age 13, so he attended the hospital schools till he was 16. And you went into a psychiatric hospital? Or? No, I was in a general hospital. Suffering from what? I think depression. No. I just stayed in bed and wept. And, just <laughs> and I look back and I think, gosh, I was, people helped me. And I think people do have to reach out to those in mental health difficulties. I just almost don't even know where to start with what I want to ask you because your story is so moving and poignant and you're such an incredible woman. And the way you've got through such things, because what we, you know, Giles was in hospital, but he died, didn't he, at the age of 35? Yes. I mean, grief is one of those things I mean most things get easier the second the third time but grief is one of those things that doesn't seem to get easier obviously as you get older you lose your parents I lost my foster parents I've lost my sister but then to lose your only child and that really is so impactful my husband's never really recovered Uh, I think I have recovered I've learned to live without Giles and without his need of me, because you're desperately needed when you've got such a vulnerable child. And what I've done is moved into the philanthropic area and realised that we don't know enough about autism. We know what it looks like, but we don't know enough about what it is. And so a charity like Autistica really drives forward. It publicises... I mean, for example, it's got a current project looking I think for the first time at what stigma for mental health means. Because so many autistic people are, about 63% of them have anxiety Mm -hmm. problems. 78% of them see their mental health as the most important thing in their life. And when Autistica did a a survey uh, of about a 1,000 families and individuals with autism a couple of years ago, the mental health came out loud and clear that this was what was necessary. Also, other things came out like um, uh, the need for earlier diagnosis. Well, any parent would have told you that that was going to come out of a survey. Um, But the way in which Autistica now focuses its um, research on under-researched groups such as women in autism, Mm. uh, very much under-researched, and also people like my Jazzy, I mean, autistic and learning disability. He had severe epilepsy, didn't he? Yes, he did, and that's what killed him, actually. Um, I'm so sorry, and you're, you know, you're such (laughs) such an incredible woman. You said that. I know, I'm saying it again, because it deserves to be said again and again and again and again, Steve. Dame Dynamo, Steve. Let's talk about women in autism. What is the percentage split gender-wise of autism? Well, it used to be thought that it was just a male thing. 
uh, then people realized, oh, it's all one in this, one in that. It's now considered to be something like three to one, something like that, male yeah. versus female. There's a good clue there as to why it should be so. so is, is it genetic? Is it something that we can use to drive research? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, is it like many other things because it is autism is underdiagnosed in girls? We present somewhat differently. Um, a lot of other things. Oh, well, it's it's the autism. It's uh, yeah. Um, How do so. girls present? Well, I think we've learnt to communicate more as a gender, yeah. and so they present less. They're, they're less violent. They're less strong, even if they are violent. Um, and my son was violent. You know, I mean, I know how to cope when somebody's going at my neck. How do you deal with that as a parent, knowing that your child is ill and this isn't his well, fault? Well, it, I think you deal with it in exactly the same way as if he had measles. Um, you, you help him. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to... Somebody asked me what I was doing at the weekend, and I, without thinking, I said, I'm nursing my son. And I really thought of it as nursing. Mm. Uh, but, you know, most people with autism are not like my child's, thank goodness. And today we know much more as to how to uh, uh, make sure that they do lead a good life, uh, even though it's different to yours or mine. Mm-hmm. After Giles died, you said your husband still has never really got uh, gotten over it. Did you have therapy or did you deal with it entirely through launching yourself into philanthropy? I didn't have therapy. I think my husband should have, and I suggested it. He didn't take up the idea. I think he thought it would be a sort of weakness. or I mean, we grieve in a quite different sort of way. Mm. We've hardly discussed Giles at all. His name is never mentioned, and yet he is the elephant in the room, as one says. So um, it, it makes it difficult, but we cope. A lot of life is just coping. Life is not all honey. Um, We have to cope. Mm -hmm. And um, the philanthropy, let's talk about when you decided to set up Autistica. I think round about the millennium, I'd started to think about what do we need to do? What do we need to understand? And so there was a series of studies, uh, literary search, uh, and projects that I studied and initiated. I don't actually do the work, of course. Other people always do it for me. But um, around about 2004, I realised that there was enough going on there. I really needed a team to do that. And so set up Autistica with the help of an American charity. I went and worked in America for a bit to find out what they were doing. So I was able to sort of copy what some of the processes they'd gone through, like looking for particularly at genetics, looking at baby siblings, that is, the babies who had known older brothers and sisters who were diagnosed with autism. And so you could actually pick up things very, very early in their life and so start to intervene. But that turned into a full-scale charity that is now the largest medical research autism charity in Europe. Well, Enormously proud of it. Well done. Um, I'm going to give you a round of applause for that, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing. <laughs> we have a very good team. And one of the first things it did was to set up a, an autism brain bank. Now, now, that's not a cheery thing to be doing, but it's very important. America had a brain bank and something went wrong with it. 
Um, but so again, that brain bank is the largest in the world. So research is, you don't know that something's going to be valuable. All you know is that unless you find out, you don't have a chance of getting on top of a particular problem. What advice would you give to any parents who are perhaps starting down this journey, discovering their child has autism? You know, in retrospect, what would you say? I say, and I say it pretty frequently, you need to look after the whole family. You need to look after yourself, not just focus on your autistic child. Because else has happened with me, everything breaks down and... So that sort of healthy selfishness is something that I actually think is important. And I do talk to parents of other children. I see them quite a lot. And very often they are themselves depressed. And I try to talk about how letting their child be educated in, in a different way is the most helpful, loving thing that they can do even if that means special schooling. Mm -hmm. And most parents desperately try for mainstream schooling. But that may not be the best thing for the child because you're setting up the child for failure. I know mostly about autism with learning disability because it all stems from my interest with Giles. But of course, if you're bringing up a bright autistic boy who's going to go to Yale and study <laughs> computer science, the problems are very different. Mm. You've spoken very candidly about your relationship with your husband. And what is it that keeps you together? Oh, we love each other. We, we do. Um, sometimes I, we, we have shared so much. We've gone through so much together that I think that holds us together nowadays. And, and he's getting older and has his own problems. So do you look after him? Sort of. <laughs> I'm really interested, Steve. He looks after me as well. I think relationships are so important. And when you get a, a strong marriage that even if it goes through bad times, um, I write in my memoir, Let It Go, about how we nearly, nearly, nearly separated. I'd actually moved out. But that is now 20 years ago or something. And we're still together. Is that being made into a movie? Yes, the whole book, I think. Who's going to play you? Ah, well, that's the big question. Who would you it? like to play you? Well, I think the elderly Steve should be Dame Judith Dench. Oh, of don't course. You think? I mean, but the young one, I don't know. Oh, who who would be good enough? Well, this is. I mean, <laughs> frankly, who would? I think you should just play yourself, Steve. And and you can add to your fantastic career of computer science, founding an amazing charity, being the most generous philanthropist in this country, an Oscar to your Wouldn't uh, that CV. be lovely? It would be, yes, I, think, I can just imagine myself holding it. And yes. the speech you'd make, it would be wonderful. If they're listening, the people that are making this film right now, cast Dame Steve as Dame Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really fascinated because you've, you've seen so much. We spoke earlier about, they talk about, how we currently have an epidemic of anxiety and depression and you said no that's not true we've always we've always mm. had these issues what advice would you give just generally to young people now living in a world where you said we're incredibly selfish we're obsessed with consumerism our heads are constantly in social media and i'm just thinking from your philanthropic background what advice would you give to young people today to stay happy I think start giving of themselves, giving not just money, because philanthropists, it's not just money. You give time and skills and contacts and energy. Um, and to get involved with both charity and philanthropy, and there is a difference, 
I think makes uh, for a happier life. Charity is when you actually see a street person and put, put some money in their hat, an act of generosity, and that makes you feel good. Philanthropy is when you start thinking, what's that person doing on the street? Why is he there? What is it? And start thinking about what society needs to do. As soon as you start thinking strategically, that's where organisations like Autistica really pull their weight. Did you ever think of going into politics? It's often been suggested, Brady, and I always say a firm, no, no, no. I, I couldn't do the compromises that are necessary in politics. I think you'd be amazing. You'd be an amazing prime minister. The world, the country would be a much better, the world would be a better place. <laughs> Dame Dynamo Steve for prime minister. Steve, you're the most incredible woman. I'm so glad you've come on because we've had a lot of young whippersnappers, so to speak, talking about their mental health. And I think it's really important that we've got someone as wise and learned and incredible as you with so much experience coming on and talking about mental health from perhaps an older perspective. I myself have learned so much from you. Can you but these things are mutual. When young people and old people in, interact properly, each learns from the other. I love working with young people because you, I get lots of ideas and different ways of looking at things. The, the ones that are, are fond of me can really sort of say, Steve, that's, you don't do that anymore. And then really are sort of able to tease me out of some of the old-fashioned things that I do. Are you on Twitter? It's done for me, isn't that sound awful? Yes. Oh, well, I, <laughs> well, we can... Uh, Instagram? Done for me. Oh, I love it that you have an Instagram. What is your Instagram? I've no idea. Oh, well, we'll put them on the website afterwards. Steve, you're an amazing woman. I look forward to watching your Oscar speech and to calling you my Prime Minister. Thank you so much for coming in to Mad World. You're amazing. Thank you, Mad World, for having me. <laughs> If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website, which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld. If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 03001233393. That's 03001233393. And they're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808. 802-5544. That's 0808-802-5544. And remember this, you are not alone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 